We're trying to develop language to understand our experience of racism, race, diversity, culture, inequities, discrimination, as we're trying to hash that out and understand like where is it happening in our ministries and in our church that we stay anchored, anchored, anchored in the gospel. How does the richness of diversity fit into our understanding of faith? What's the best way to live out the uniqueness that God has given to each and every one of us? And how does that change when we move from business to religious settings? In today's episode, we meet Sister Josephine Garrett, who defies the ordinary and limited expectations of what makes a Catholic leader in our American context. The voices that God is like raising up the witnesses that God is raising up that are remaining, like not the trendy ones, that are remaining are people who are able to speak like those first disciples. And they speak of what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have touched, you know, what they have known, the sincerity of their journeys, where they failed, where they didn't fail. The Gospel shows us the way in which God can form a single people from every and any nation, race, and language, and in doing so, how He raises witnesses for the conversion of the whole world. This is Living the Call. Sister, God bless you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. God bless you. So great to see you. We have so much to talk about. I have to tell you a little bit of a funny, um, maybe not funny, but uh, an interesting aside as to how I first really learned about you. Um, okay. I was texted by somebody that, so I've worked in the media industry for 20 years uh, out here in LA mm -hmm. and mostly have had like a kind of a secular media background. And a woman that I've worked with for years uh, sent me a text. She knows I'm a deacon and maybe she was following me. I have no idea, but she saw one of my talks and by virtue of going and researching that talk, she came across one of yours. And this is a, you know, woman who's perfectly lovely, but we've never had a conversation about the faith. Never. And we've never mm -hmm. talked about, you know, her own faith walk, but my guess would be that she's pretty nominally anything to the extent she's anything, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But she was super impacted by your talk, the, the OSV talk that you gave, the um, daily discernment. And she texted me as like a way to say, hey, I've found something that's like Catholic, like you're Catholic and this thing is Catholic and I just love it. And she told me all about it. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. So I went and I, I checked out your talk and I learned more about you. And then I let the folks at OSV know about this comment that this woman had made. And somehow they got that comment to you and you replied and I passed on the comment to her and she was blown away. She was like, I cannot <laughs> believe that all this happened. I don't even know if you remember this, but but. But that's how I came to know about you. And I just thought like, wow, I got to get, I got to talk to sister because that's so cool that she did that. But just to, just for you to know your words having an impact in this very kind of secular Hollywood kind of like little, you know, uh, area and and what that meant um, to this particular lady. So anyway, I just wanted to, to start with that. Thank you. I don't remember responding, but I'm, thank God I did. <laughs> I think you responded to I think you responded through somebody maybe at uh, at OSV okay. but they passed it along okay. to me. But anyway, I wanted to thank you uh and I'll I'll, I'll sure. make sure that this woman gets to listen to the show as well. So um Okay. So God bless her. Sister, you're in Texas. Um yes. actually born and bred, right? Yes, I love being a Texan. Native Texan. We're very proud. Yeah. <laughs> was your was your family there for a while prior? Have you uh, like how long has your family been in or your roots been in Texas? I mean, I can go back to great grandparents for roots here. Oh wow! Actually, yeah, yeah. So yeah, my grandparents' parents. We 
ha- like we still have land where they were. Wow. So always in yeah. the same area, Tyler and all that. Well, no, no. Okay. So like the area where our land is, where I can trace maternal great grandparents back to, is um, it's what's now called like Navasota. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also Houston, and then like all around Houston roots as well. But where I can go back to great grandparents is the Navasota area, is what it's called. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not familiar with where that where that would be. It's the country. It is it's the That's country. Huge. Yeah, it's the country. Uh, but so then I grew up in Houston, lived in Dallas half my life, mm-hmm. and now I'm in Tyler, Texas. Oh, wonderful! Mm-hmm. Very cool. So, um, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, I was excited to have you on the show for a number of different reasons. Number one is this show, Living the Call, is you know about people who are living their vocation in positions of leadership with an emphasis on maybe the voices that aren't often heard, certainly in a Catholic context, and and, and kind of giving more voice and, and, and visibility to people from a variety of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And so there's obviously based on some of the work that you've done in the, in the, in the media, you know, articles and videos that you've done about being a Catholic religious who happens to be black and having your background, I definitely wanted to talk about a number of those things. But I wanted to, sure. I wanted to start, though, with um, your your faith walk and your, um, you know, entry into the Catholic faith, because I love, like everybody does, a good conversion story. And and there is one with you. And I, I wanted to start with that because you didn't start out a Catholic. No, I grew up Baptist. Um, so it was Central Garden Missionary Baptist Church All right. <laughs> in, in Houston, Texas. And um was unique. I think one of the unique things as I reflect on it now, like I was actually just home in Houston last week. And so I think that leaves me presently reflecting on like growing up in the faith. And so I was adopted when I was eight years old by my aunt and uncle. Mm. And my uncle is is my father's brother. And my aunt was aunt by marriage. She actually grew up Catholic in the Caribbean in a small country called Dominica. But when they decided where to take us to church, they chose this Baptist church because they just really wanted us, you know, we had been through a lot and they wanted us to have a sense of family in our church because we spent so much time there and this Baptist church, we knew a lot of people there. We had some family connections there. And so that's how we ended up going there for, for a church. And it wasn't just Sunday. It was Wednesday, you know, youth group Thursday or no Friday choir rehearsal Sunday church. You lived there. <laughs> so yeah. we were there three days a week minimum. If there was a big event coming up, it was almost sometimes every day of the week. So um, I, I wouldn't change it one bit. Sure. Can, um, I loved growing up Baptist. Yeah. I wouldn't change it one bit. Can you recall a moment uh-huh. when you realized that there were other maybe denominations or ways to worship? How old were you when you recognized that you were a Baptist and not, or, and not specifically like a or general kind of broad church Christian? Like when did the, the notice of the Baptist part seep into your consciousness? College. So I didn't have a deep awareness of that different denominations at all growing up like it was not something on my mind in our home in our church we didn't speak a lot about differences among christians it was not a common conversation but when i got to college i had enrolled in university of dallas without a sense that this place was going to be different from a faith perspective so how'd you how'd you come across university of dallas if if you're was walking around at a school fair in a gym and um, I had gotten paperwork from them and it said the school for independent thinkers. And I like that tagline. 
Right. So I had him on my list to talk to. And I spent, I remember I stood and talked to the admissions counselor for a long time. It was a long conversation. And I was actually due to go to like one of the fancier meetings with one of the fancier schools where they had like a private room. And I remember he looked at me and he said, you probably have to go. I know some of the schools have those big kind of fancy meetings in the private rooms. And I know one of those is starting. And I said to him, I had planned on it, but I'd really like to continue talking with you. And he said, well, that's fine. And it just was a great conversation. Everyone I met from UD was like that. I just enjoyed being around them, talking with them, found them to be very nice people. So that's why I chose. I chose to go there because the people I had encountered were nice. I just did not understand it was Catholic. Um, And then when I got there, I was like, well, I am different. There is something different here. Um, a lot of folks may not so know was, about University of Dallas, but yeah, of course it's a Catholic school, but it also has this, um, you know, <laughs> reputation, heritage, whatever experience of being, you know, very serious um, place in terms of its um, of its faith and, and kind of how it approaches these things. Did it come up like the fact that it was Catholic in, in the initial kind of interview with this person? No, nope. he did hmm. not share with me, but he did know. He knew I was not Catholic. Sure. Um, I think he would have to know I was not Catholic, but it did not. He did not share with me like the extent of the Catholic identity um, of the church. What was the first thing <laughs> so, that that sort of stood out to you when you were on campus life, and you're like, "I'm different." Why? Uh, it was this place is weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I it was that's what I thought this place is weird and my family noticed it too and they they said this place is weird but they used that word in a positive way mm. they were like they actually said to me we wish your brother would have come here but it actually made me a little bit more at that time in my life more protective of my baptist identity so sure. you know I would be heard in my dorm room like jamming my gospel music like I kind of became more baptist mm. <laughs> Um, at first, but yeah, the first impression was, this is weird. I don't, there was so much I just didn't understand, but then I had my group of friends and, uh, I played soccer. And so the soccer girls, we were all just really similar. Um, and so I didn't have as strong of a sense of there's something really different between us with them. Um, so there became this group of can- on campus those like super Catholic people who I wasn't close to. And so that kind of, that was a dynamic as well. There's um, a theory, or I guess it's a theory of some, some parents when they go to send their kids off to school who want their kids to remain in the faith, that they shouldn't send them to a Catholic school at all, that they should send them to a secular school precisely because of the dynamic you just described that like, well, once I go out into this sort of broader world, that I want to hold on to my Catholicism and like kind of defend it, right? In the same way that maybe mm-hmm. you did with with your Baptist tradition. Um, there's some kind of logic in that, I guess, right? In the sense that, you know, if you go to a, a, a Catholic school or, you know, a broader religious setting, that maybe it's there's not something as, as meaningful to kind of defend, although uh, something different happened in your experience. Yeah, yeah. I like to tell people it eventually made an impression on me. Um, so... I I love to sing and I wanted mm-hmm. to be a part of a choir. And so it was, it would have been freshman year. They told me there's a great choir at the school. And I went to a couple of rehearsals and they were singing all in Latin. And it just, I was like, I don't want to be here. So I left. I didn't go back to the choir. But then in, um, during sophomore year, I, most sophomores at University of Dallas spend a semester in Rome. So I spent the second semester of school in, in Rome. and um, 
this changed everything because, you know, we heard, I got to hear Pope St. John Paul II speak often. Wow. And I was just, um, I didn't, you understand, I had no sense of the faith. Looking back, I can see now my aunt prayed the breviary mm. and I can see now that she continued to pray the rosary, even though we went to Baptist church, but she didn't teach it to me and I didn't have a sense of it. So I had no sense of all these Catholic things happening around me, but that man to me was an exceptional preacher. Oh, um, yeah. And so he, right. Like that's how I saw him. Like this is an exceptional preacher and what he had to say about God. It just like resonated all through me. And so I wanted to hear him speak as often as I could. And, and you're then, hearing him in Italian at that point, no? Or is he, or is he speaking in... No, sometimes he would speak English. Sometimes that in English. That floored me as well. Because there would be occasions where he... We counted once we were at something. Maybe it was Easter. We counted and he delivered in seven languages. Oh, yeah. In one Yeah. Once that we were in. And so, um, yes, I just was taken uh, with what how, the way he spoke about God and then like my kind of my my conscience was really being awakened to catholic identity living in rome and and all that they were offering to us like we were studying um the letters to the corinthians in corinth <laughs> you know we You're were like physically we were there yeah that makes physically a difference physically there right. yeah so it's like it just flooded like my senses were being flooded with catholic identity so when i came back from rome um, I rejoined that choir mm-hmm. and loved it. Wow. Like where I couldn't love it before, then I loved it. And it was a Latin liturgical choir, so we would sing the Mass. So I began to learn the Mass. And she would make us translate what we were singing. So like we would sing the Tritium. And I was translating all of these this music for the Tritium and learning to pray the Tritium. <laughs> like it's so... I mean... It's just like my... Yeah, my whole senses were being filled and so uh, when I graduated from college um, I you know I I was a soccer girl in college I was a party girl when I graduated I was still a little bit of a party girl Mm -hmm. and so a couple years after graduating I was very aware like that is not who I am meant to be I was raised by women of faith and I want to be like them and so that's when I thought I need to be going to church but at that point I realized I missed the mass I miss the math. Was it something so. conscious where you're like, I miss it because of this? Or was it a, a kind of intangible where you kind of couldn't put your finger on what it was, but you knew you needed, you were longing for something? No, I knew because I had gone, like when I said, I need, I want to be a woman of God, like the people who raised me, mm-hmm. um, the women who raised me, I went automatically to like a mega Baptist church in in Dallas. It's super popular. The pastor there is really famous. And it felt to me, and I don't want to offend anyone, this was my experience was like I was at a circus. Well, um, having the backdrop I, of Rome and you're sitting there in Corinth and listening to JP2 talk and you don't even, I mean, it's like that's not a, a common, you know, uh, t- you know, Texas sort of experience, I guess, right. to be back, to right. be juxtaposed with. Right. And so, I mean, that, I remember the day that I walked away from that mega Baptist church saying, this will not be for me. The person who preached the sermon, he had these like life-size props that he was rolling out on the stage, wow. if you will. And I was like, it's just too much going on for me to find God. Hmm. And so I walked away that day and I was like, I know this is 
it's weird because my senses were filled by the Catholic Church. But when I tried to go back to the, the Baptist Church, my senses were overloaded. Mm. It's, it's like, it's That's kind of interesting. And that made me miss the Mass because there was something there. I guess that awakened my spiritual senses because, yeah, maybe that's what it was. So it was about the quiet was what it began. And then it developed into this realization because growing up, it was all about the pastor and all about the music and this realization that the mass could, I mean, everything could suck. The priest could be, you know, the worst homilist, the choir could be dreadful, but the Eucharist, um, is always available to us in the mass. And so therefore the mass was always good, Mm. was super attractive to me. So Mm. those two things, like this realization that um, what I was finding in the Baptist tradition was too loud for me um, personally. And again, that's, everyone's different. But then also this realization that I no longer need to rely on pastors and choirs and, um, these these external realities to feel like church was good i have like i have christ himself it's really interesting that your that your perspective was that um and it obviously shows just the grace working um you know in you that you'd been exposed to but i've heard in in many cases the opposite which is a lot of comparisons of the catholic mass to a um, you know, Protestant sermon, but in a kind of negative way, in the sense of like, oh, it's so dull, it's so boring, it's so this, or it's so unscriptural, which of course, you know, is certainly not the case in terms of the mm-hmm. scripture that that's unfolded in Mass, but this idea that a sermon can be given and expository preaching can be done on a single phrase of scripture for like an hour, that's like a very Protestant kind of experience. And people will look at the church and say, well, that's not what that is, and almost like compare a Protestant sermon with maybe what a Catholic Bible study might look like, almost like, hmm. you know what I mean? Like different comparisons. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating to hear your experience of feeling like almost that was too much, too loud and, and, and kind of longing for that, that sense of quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my, and again, the, that, the Eucharist, like what? Everything can be super boring, yeah. but like, yeah, but then there's this, this, this other thing happened. None of that matters. Yeah, none of it matters. Well, let's let's talk about that because I know I've heard one of your talks and you talk about the Eucharist and how it um, you know, kind of it draws you incrementally, right? Every time we receive, it's sort of like this additional shot of grace and it's like the things fall away from us and these layers are sort of developed mm-hmm. and exposed. And 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 to some respect that maybe that's like your experience of coming to faith in the Catholic Church was these kind of layers maybe drawing you sort of closer to it. But was there any moment, like a moment of inflection in your journey where it was, I mean, I know it's all happening incrementally, but was there one moment where you're like, I can no longer be what I was, and I have to really seriously consider um, this this Catholic experience? That, what you're talking about, like this... Um... Like, because the word decision, Mm. you probably know this because you're a very smart guy. It's got that like similarity to incision. So it actually Mm. means like can mean to slay, to cut away. And so that what you're talking about, like that kind of painful cutting away, knowing either I will be this or I will be this. That was actually what happened when I discerned religious life. Um, So with becoming Catholic, it was just like, this is the way like forward and deeper for me. 
Mm. And and so I I did there was a slaying in the sense of decision because I was very I was acutely aware. Um, I'll tell people this, you know, that there was this sister, this religious sister who would come into the bank where I worked and we would chat because the things she needed took a long time. And so I'd chat with her about the church because I knew a lot about the church having gone to UD. And uh, one day she said, it seems like you love the church. Why aren't you Catholic? And I really mm. quickly said to her, because y'all don't have enough black people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> y'all have enough. And she knew I meant black Americans. Like there's not a lot of black American Catholics. Yeah, and right. so um, that had to be slain. Like mm. this, this realization that like, once I do this, because when I went to school, I was one of very few black people. When I went to work, I was one of very few black people. Church was a place where I would go and not be one of very few black people. And so that had to be slain with this, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, God was really, um, I'm not sure what word I want to use, but it was kind of like a nod from God. Like, I'm aware of this struggle but i still need you to move forward because i said that to the sister and she wrote down the name and number of the rcia director that was at the parish closest to my job and that woman turned out to be a black american woman okay <laughs> so there was this little kind of nod from a god like god wink yeah i'm hearing you yeah i'm hearing you it's not gonna get fixed you're still gonna be one of few but i want you to know that i heard you and i still need you to come this way um, and so, yeah, that was kind of like a, a very firm cutoff, but this more firm, like, I am not going to be okay if I don't do this and I don't know what it's going to look like. That was more religious. In life. the religious life when you were kind yeah. of letting go of all the, of all those things. Now, going mm -hmm. back to your, um, to that moment when you told the lady at the bank, it's like folks should know that you had a long career in banking, which we'll, we'll touch on in a minute. But mm -hmm. when you when you told that lady, hey, no way, there's not enough black people. I mean, you were telling a truth in the sense that there's not a lot of uh, African-American uh, black right. Catholics. And, and your point was you wanted to feel at home in your worship experience, mm -hmm. but God kind of helped you sever that. So I get all that. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, and one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about being on, you know, on the show is, you know, the idea that that we don't have a lot of African Americans that are part of the church, you know, as a percentage, and I don't know the exact numbers, but like it, it's it it's not a majority of the of the mm -hmm. black community in the U.S. Um, right, who who are worshiping Catholics. We do have some, but it tends to be more regional, Louisiana, that right. kind of thing. Exactly. Um, but you know, but the gospel calls all people, all nations, you know, to the church ultimately, right, to the fullness mm -hmm. of of the faith, and so. I'm curious about your feelings on that now um, in a number of different respects, but let's just start with, is there a sense as to why Catholicism more broadly in the U.S., in a U.S. context, you think has not been as maybe effective is the right word? I don't even know if that's the right word, but like at drawing more African-Americans to it. What's at the root of that? I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time reflecting on this, but I think a, you talk about region, like how yeah. faith develops in the region, and that plays a role. And so it was a huge, like that word severing to do. So to, to as, as Black Americans are being asked to respond to a call to live as Catholics, they immediately in the, in the context of worship become a minority. And so that takes a lot of courage. But then I also don't know if there's much done to bring black communities into an awareness of the Catholic faith 
on mm. larger scales. Mm -hmm. So like I encountered the faith because I entered into by happenstance, a Catholic community. I don't know how often Catholic communities are entering into black communities. Wow. Yeah. And so it may be some of that, just an absence of encounter. Um, it, it may be some of that, just an absence of encounter. And then also like an absence of encounter. Cause like I came here to this school where I work and the, the school where I work is the predominance is Hispanic and white. Um, mm -hmm. And like almost, almost really like running pace by pace in this grade school. And then um, way lower down prevalence is Blacks and Asians. And so I came here and a, a student, a young Black male student who was in the fifth grade and he had been going here since kindergarten, he came up to me and said, I want to be Catholic. <laughs> And he wow. said, and he said, and my mom does too. And he's a really mischievous kid. So I was like, are you playing with me? Don't be playing with me, little boy. You know, <laughs> he said, call my mom. And I said, I'm going to call your mother. <laughs> so I promise I called I'm her. not lying. Yeah. I called her and she said, yes, we both. She's like, he's not messing with you, sister. We both want to become Catholic. And it's like, then I started to reflect, like, why didn't they ask that question until I got here? Hmm. You know, like, because they've yeah. been in this community and they love this community and this community loves them. And like, and so I think that's super interesting. Is it just like one of those things where you just, you know, you're just like looking and, and, it, and it doesn't become obvious to you immediately that these are just folks like everyone else. You kind of sell, you kind of categorize them in a, in a way because of the, the fact that they tend, they tend to not be Catholic. Like what's at play there, do you think? What's at play with them not asking the question until or I got you not, here? Or, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Them not, yeah. And so that's what left me reflecting. Like, were they not ready to ask it because there wasn't anyone who looked like them to ask it to? Right. Um, right. You know, and what, or was it, it's not an option for me because I don't see people who look like me doing it. Mm. And then once they saw someone who looks like them doing it, did that make it become an option? Um, this was a reflection. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what all of a sudden made it time, but I will say just as I'm sitting here reflecting on your question, I think the reason we haven't had more black Americans coming into the Catholic church is because an absence of encounter, like an absence of black Americans going into black black Catholics going into black American communities, revealing that this is an option um, because growing up as a black American, that was a trend in, in the black community. Sometimes we limit our options. Like sometimes there's things we think we can't do in the world because it's not common for black people right now to do that in this country. That makes um, sense. I guess what I would boil it down to is perhaps I'm not a sociologist. I would speculate perhaps it's because there's not an encounter happening. Catholics are not going into these communities and black Catholics are not prevalent in these communities or going into these communities. I think on some level, I mean, they're, I, I think you're right. First of all, I do think that it's in large part because of that. People tend to at least feel that they have permission to consider things when they feel that other folks who have their same lived experience maybe are participating in a thing. And that obviously shouldn't limit everyone. People, somebody has to be first and all that kind of stuff. But I think right. in general, it does play 
you know, a role in this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearly even you, when the when the woman said, hey, you should be Catholic. And this is after, it seems like, years of exposure and Latin singing and trips to Rome. And you're like, no, 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 there's not enough black people there. <laughs> right? I mean, even you had that kind of response, right? So so right. presumably that's, that's out there. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how you think about, like the whole country has been talking a lot about, um, about race. And you know, diversity, in my opinion, can be properly and improperly understood, right? right. And I think that um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. This this is your show, not mine. But like, I, I want to hear your your thoughts about maybe the whole conversation that we've been having uh, over the course of the last couple of years. And you know, the proper way to understand you know God's creation and the way that we're made and our uniqueness, and maybe ways that we shouldn't. You know what I mean? Like, what's mm-hmm. what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I keep coming back to, it's later in the catechism where it talks about the final realization of the human race, you know, Mm. it calls it this consummation. And it's a, it's a unity under Christ, you know, among, among all people. And so that's the, this is the final realization of the human race, this unity. If I could look it up real quick, I I would, because it's literally my favorite passage from the catechism. Um, when it speaks about like becoming like this truly one human family mm-hmm. under the authority of God, you know, governed by the authority of God. And so I, I have to say, like, I've been disappointed over the last couple of years because I think we've in many cases become far more passionate about uh, frameworks offered to us of that are of the world yeah. and like language that's of the world. And we need to try we have to pursue a language to help us understand our experience. Like we have to do that. We can't, we can't operate outside of that. At the same time, I think we have to hold that language with pretty loose hands. And I've just seen us being overzealous about adopting frameworks of the world and language of the world as the path forward for the final realization of the of the human race. But the mm. final realization of the human race is a matter of our faith yeah. and it lived well. And I know, again, we have to adopt language to help us understand how that experience is not played out in light of our faith. Like how racism being played out is contrary to the gospel. We have to adopt language for that. But our grade, the area that we rise up most passionately in defense has to be the area of our faith, not the area of the frameworks given to us in the culture. And I think we're a little flipped right now. And these frameworks (laughs) tend to be political. They tend to be societal. They tend to be pop culture driven. They tend to be all of those things. And they're passing. They're passing. Mm. Like they're all passing. And so I just think we have not, um, I, I would call us to be a little bit more discerning, you know, as we're trying to develop language to understand our experience of racism, race, diversity, culture, inequities, discrimination, as we're, you know, trying to hash that out and understand, like, where is it happening in our ministries and in our church that we stay anchored, anchored, anchored in the gospel, anchored, anchored, anchored in the catechism. Um, And so I got to participate in a project through our Sunday visitor. And it's a tiny little book called Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood. Okay. And it's like literally only like that thick. And the editor was Michael Heinlein. And then they invited six 
guest authors to reflect on the six men and women who are in the book. Um, and they all have open causes for um, beatification. And um, these are like venerable, venerable Henrietta Lil and yes. folks like that. Yes, okay. Augustus Tolton. Mine was Julie, Augustus Tolton. Yeah, yeah, Julia Greeley was mine. Okay. And uh, I didn't even know her. I didn't even know her. And I'm a black Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so first it was like we didn't know these stories. Second, right. everyone in this book dealt with diversity issues, discrimination, racism, and equities. Everyone in sure. the book dealt with that. And they are like beacons on how yeah. to address that as like gospel leaven. And wow. like um, take Julia Greeley, for example. And I just don't see enough of this in our common address of diversity issues in our church. I don't see enough of the six patterns among these men and women. However, as I'm saying that, I almost need to say it to myself when we address these inequities in our church, in our ministries, the way these six men and women did, it's probably not going to make headlines and it's probably not going to mm. blow up on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so You're right. It's, why it's not, sh- not, it. yeah. it's not viral in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really, turned up really, enough. <laughs> exactly. It isn't. I really love what you said too, about these things are passing. I was having, and you're a person who's got experience in the corporate world. A lot of folks listening to this show are leaders themselves, right? In a variety of different capacities, business and otherwise. Mm -hmm. But I was talking to somebody recently um, in a corporate corporate setting, uh, part of the work that I do. And they were saying, they were kind of in a way confiding in me. This is a white person that was saying this, asking me my perspective on the fact that they thought inside their own company, a lot of the exuberance that had been raised after the tragic um, uh, killing of George Floyd, was beginning to wane. Hmm. Like they had put all these things in place of these new corporate steps, and we're going to have DNI, and we're going to have these these different officers and roles and programs. But like the momentum was beginning to wane. And my thinking as a person of faith is, well, if the only reason you're doing it is to be in the moment and be popular and to kind of latch onto these things, well, everything has a season, and they come hmm. in and out of season, right? Except is the that something close? Amen. <laughs> is that something close to what you you just answered it? So it is. Yeah, yeah something close to what you were saying. Yes, yeah. and it was a big struggle in me because when George Floyd was killed. Okay, so last year was my year of preparation for final vows, and so I've been. I'm a counselor, and I've been in school to be a counselor. And then I also do like sometimes like writing and speaking and things like that. But during the year of preparation for vows, my leadership team was like, shut all that writing and speaking down because we need you having extra space to hear God (laughs) as you prepare for this huge, like beautiful commitment and exchange. Probably pretty good advice. Super good, like excellent advice. And so I made my vows in November of last year. Well, in the summer when George Floyd was killed, I started getting invitations and we're all in quarantine COVID and they were invitations to do things virtually, like on the phone or on a Zoom. And so I accepted a few of them, but then it just started spiraling and getting bigger and bigger and like taking up the space that I had, you know, intentionally made for God. And so um, it was right before I left for a 30-day retreat. I went on a 30-day retreat as part of preparation that I realized like I needed to reclose the door on that type of ministry um, because it was mm. really like um, taking away the space that we had not only intentionally made, but that had been like a unexpected blessing of of quarantine. And, um, 
as I was reflecting on like all of this starting to like be like a tumbleweed growing and growing and getting sure. bigger than just a couple of Zoom calls and phone calls here and there, I realized I had a fear of um, being exploited for the sensation of the moment. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want, and it came because I got someone messaged me and they said, can we interview you about racial justice issues in America? Yada, yada. And I started to realize like some of these interviews don't have to happen right now because this will still be something we need to be talking about a year from now. And it doesn't all have to happen right now. And so that it started to like rest on me in prayer that I I needed I myself needed to slow down and be aware of that and not get caught up in, in sensation. So I told the person, it's my year of preparation for final vows. I'm really again closing the door on those things. I would love to speak with y'all after January for the interview. And the person wrote me back, and this is a Catholic ministry, wrote me back and said, We need to be speaking about these things while they're important. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. And I was like, and there's kind not of, that person's best moment. No, not their finest moment. Not their finest not moment. Not their finest but they, moment. You know what? They were caught up in this, mm-hmm. yeah, caught up in this culture, this this pattern we've created for ourselves, this programmatic approach to ministry where we need a program for the hot topic and then we're rolling oh. on. Um that we're all kind of caught up in. So yeah, I, as a black woman, Catholic felt afraid to be exploited for the present sensation. That is an amazing insight. And it's always like a balancing act, you know, even for me, the same thing you want to try to talk about from a Catholic context in the U S well, how more important could the Latino church be as an example, right? Mm. It's 42% of the whole church. Mm. It's 65% of young Catholics. So like, it should be the most important thing. I'm usually, I find myself usually one of very few people in a room of, you know, a diverse group of Catholic folks having that, saying that, but at the same time, I don't want to only be regarded because of that, right? right? It's like, oh, well, here's a Latino guy talking about the Latino thing, but it's a balancing act because it's true, sister. People do need to see you in those forums representing the faith from an American context and speaking to, you know, being that that moment or that doorway of permission to other people who look at you and say, hey, that looks like me, and I never even thought about this. What are you talking about? You're Catholic or religious. But at the same time, it's got to be because you know of, of the gospel principles that we know, because you're a person, because of the beauty of the way that God made creation, because of that, you know, the inherent loveliness of different cultures, mm-hmm. but not because it's like a trending topic, yes. right? And yeah. I think that's the balancing act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for the good. I just don't know how to do that. Yeah, I know. It's hard to do and it's hard to discern. Like when yeah. it is, you're right. Like it's it's a balancing act because we can't just retreat. Um, so yeah, yeah. But do you do you now you're as a religious though, and you're a sister of the holy family of Nazareth, yeah. which we haven't touched on too much, but um I definitely would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, that unique uh, charism and and maybe tell the folks a little bit about that order. But also as being a religious, you have that sort of ultimate balancing act, right, of like your kind of religious community-based um, charism and all the things that are there. And then this idea of kind of the work and ministry and the things that you do out in the world and kind of balancing those. Talk a little bit about about that in general, maybe something about 
about who the sisters are. Sure. So we, and that's like what you just described, like this, our life and community and of prayer mm-hmm. and then the life and ministry. Our mother foundress was like, you are contemplative and active. <laughs> and she was like, and you go about your activity in a contemplative spirit. So she just was wow. really like challenging like us. Left brain, right brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, Sisters of the Holy Family of Nazareth, our charism is to spread God's love in the world. And so our mother mm-hmm. foundress was really uh, her devotion truly was um, the Trinity. She just was fascinated with the Blessed Trinity, the exchange of love in the Trinity. And she felt like that kind of love was in the world where there was a family spirit. Mm. And so which that family spirit is a spirit of sacrifice, you know, a spirit of being for the other and also receiving and accepting the other. Um, and so... She said, you will foster a family spirit among yourselves as sisters, but also minister to this in, in, your, in the world. And so she was really clear that what this would look like from one year to another might be different. So she said, I don't want you saying we're always going to nurse. We're always going to teach. She said, you will always serve the current needs of the church. <laughs> That's what you know, she will do. You'll yeah. put your gifts at the service of the present needs of the church. Um, so... In our charism statement, it says particularly, we do this particularly in ministries to family, to like help strengthen family life. Um, okay. We're very active, but what we feel like is we take our common life of prayer, our you know our private prayer commitments that are laid out in our constitutions, and that life and community is what is taken and given, right? So the family spirit we foster among ourselves is brought to our ministries to help foster a family spirit there as well. Um, and that idea, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say that idea that you said about, you know, we, we may not be teachers or nurses forever. We're going to minister to the needs of, of the church at that given moment. When you said that, it reminded me of one of the things that I've heard you, I don't know if it's say, or that you've written about this idea of, of daily discernment, right? Of, of like, you, you know, of living in the moment. And, and the idea of you may not be teaching or nursing in 10 years is because we don't know the future. We're, we're supposed to be drawn to the moment. So is that something, it, it sounds like it's sort of part and parcel to, to, to the charism that you have, but how, how is that moment of present or that awareness of the now important for people, maybe in a, you know, in, in a leadership context, like to your mind, mm-hmm. having been and spent time in the corporate world? Yeah, I just wish so much more that like leaders would be pausing and discerning, especially leaders in the church. Um, and especially because we have so many Catholic distractions. <laughs> Like there's yeah. just with all like the media and all the cool things people can do. Like there's a lot sure. of the things that can distract us from our local church. Um, mm. I think it's so important for, I guess it's better if I'll tell a story to help explain it for leaders to be looking and saying like, what is the true need of the people entrusted to me? Like what is the true need they have right now? And how can this leadership team serve that? Because whatever goal I have, like if I'm in a corporate setting and it's to hit a metric or um, if I'm trying to get somewhere, you know, get to a place that we laid out in a strategic plan, if and all I'm thinking about is what's down there that I want to get to, there's a step that has to be taken right now 
or there's an equipping that needs to happen needs to happen right now in order for us to be one step closer to meeting that metric or one step closer to the the ideal in the strategic plan what have you so as a, as a story as an example this was just happening to me over the last two days i realized in being here and praying with the school that one of the best uses of my time was to serve the staff and the parents. And I love being with the kids and I do a guidance curriculum for them. But at the end of the day, if, if this program can best serve like parents and staff, they spend a lot more time with the kids than I do. There's more reach. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that came from that was like, putting together resources and conversations about things going on for the parents right now, like that need to be looked at in the light of our faith, right? Especially because the culture has so much commentary on some of these things. So how do we keep bringing our families back to the faith um, on some of these topics, whether it's learning differences or same-sex attraction sure. or pornography or, um, what have been different topics or the importance of fatherhood or couples relationships. So there was recently one that I was getting ready to publish and I was getting some pushback, like, oof, it's a little too spicy. We oh, well, then it, it must be good. We could send it out <laughs> to our parents. And I was thinking long, far ahead. And I was like, I oh. want to get this out because it's impacting our kids earlier than we would think. Right. And I was right. getting kind of Cujo-ish about it. My nickname at the bank was Cujo because I was just super feisty and God has really healed me. <laughs> I was going to say, that's quite, not everyone has a Stephen King character as, the, as their nickname. <laughs> so it's Cujo. But um, I could feel Cujo coming out because I felt like I was being blocked from that mm -hmm. goal I had of getting these resources to these parents earlier so that these kids, when they start going through these things earlier, their parents feel equipped. So I could feel myself getting aggressive and I started to pray. And in that prayer, God said to me, the need right now is for you to be present to the anxieties and the fears of this person you're speaking with. Because wow. if you can minister to that, then you're one step closer to that further thing you had in mind. Um, and so I guess that's what comes back to like, what's the need now? And how do I put my gifts at the service of that? And so the need were the people in front of me who were the doorway forward to us being able to move this forward for parents. Parents could then move it forward for kids. So you've talked you've talked about that in the past as this idea of that kind of daily bread mentality, right? Or that daily bread discernment mm -hmm. of, you know, what is it that's happening right now at this moment and has the most need or that God is calling me to at that moment? How do you balance that with you know, some of these things you just talked about in the course of leadership, you know, life or business life, maybe more specifically, but, you know, about next quarter, next year and developing products and building some scalable solution <laughs> and all these things that we're used to hearing, right? Because yeah. you did a decade in the financial industry. And I mean, you've got to come across all those things. How, what advice do you have in that regard? Um, I think the solid leader is going to hold both. So the solid mm. leader can hold both in mind that we need to be visioning and hoping, and we also need to be attending to what's here now. Because if what's here now is a wreck, you know, the vision, 
it is going to yeah. be. It's going to be a little, if you even get there, it's going to be painful. And so I think the, the solid leader holds both in mind um, and can like toggle back and forth and have that flexibility. I also think, I guess, especially like for Catholic leaders, I think one of our greatest areas of growth among leadership, particularly in Catholic church, is like being okay with tough decisions, tough conversations and conflict. And yeah. so that sometimes is like right here in my face. And I, I will struggle to understand that if I can't enter into this moment, as tough as it is, as uncomfortable as it is, it is impacting that vision, that longer vision that we have. And it's impacting the like quality of our relationships. And it's like a solid relationship that's going to help us walk towards that vision together. And so sometimes mm. I think we feel like tough conversations, tough decisions and conflict are going to break our relationships and make it harder for us to get where we want to go. But I actually think it's the opposite. If we face those things, then we're kind of better united to go towards where we want to go towards all those things you mentioned in the business world that are about visioning and taking, taking the ministry forward. Um, so those are two things I would say about that. Did you find yourself when you were in that world um, that you were a person who was, you know, comfortable in those tough conversations and tough decisions, or were you somebody who would maybe be more reluctant to engage in them? I was reluctant. I had to be mentored into that. And now I'm too much. They mentored me so well that I could probably lay off it a little bit. Like, I'm like, we need to talk. We need to talk. We need to talk. Right. And they're like, we don't have to talk about every conflict, sister. So like now I could probably lay off it a little bit. Um, But at first I was super reluctant, but I was being mentored by people who just were not going to stand for that. So, I mean, I would go, you know, I had a floor of 200 people. There were five of us as operations managers that we each had 200 people. So it was like a thousand person operation. And then like one lady was over the whole thing and we reported to her. And so when I got this job, I got a mentor who, I mean, he just made me sick because he was like Mr. Personality, like every morning on his floor, kissing and babies and giving hugs. (laughs) I just wanted to go straight to my office and get to work. And he made me walk my floor every morning and say good morning to every employee, like every employee in the eye, you know, so he mentored me in this way that like, you can forget all those metrics, you can forget all those, you know, performance standards, those goals you're trying to achieve. If you can't even get on the floor and look your people in the eye and have a relationship with them and know who's having what kind of day and, you know, have those conversations, forget the rest. Um, Amen. And isn't it isn't it amazing how fr- my my brother, who's a Benedictine uh, monk, he mm-hmm. he always talks about how frugal God is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're sitting there going through this experience. You're probably nowhere in your mindset is like the idea that God could be creating this encounter with this person in this very secular setting to teach you such an amazing truth mm-hmm. or help mentor you in an amazing truth about in, about accompanying and about engagement and about interacting and understanding somebody at a personal level. But if that's how you got, got across it, if that's how it came across or one of the ways it came across, you know, glory. I mean, that's amazing. Right, right yeah. I'll tell the ladies that when I'm speaking, like working in vocation ministry and speaking with women, I'll tell them God's not going to waste anything. You know, to your point of frugality, like all that stuff that is so precious to you that you think won't matter in the vocation. God's not wasteful. <laughs> like he's going to use Amen. it. Yeah, he's going to use it. Amen. As an aside, sister, we have yet another thing in common is that my father 
was a VP of operations for B of A in the Latin American and Caribbean division. So I grew up with an, with, with, uh, you know, in these Caribbean and Latin American countries because of my dad's job, Mm -hmm. which, which different era, obviously, but (laughs) would have been similar to, uh, to, uh, to the work that you did wow, um, cool. in the finance finance world. So nice. I grew up with that in the background as well. Nice. So l- l- just kind of turning corners here as we round out the episode, sister, one thing that I always ask folks who are on this show, because it's all, you know, obviously we go through a lot of different subjects, but one thing that I think is critical is to learn from the things where we failed, particularly in those kind of leadership moments, whether they're in the secular world or other. Or other. Can you recall um, a moment where, you know, there was a, a failure, something that, um, you know, didn't turn out the way that you envisioned or, you know, but, but, but you can look at in the rear view mirror and kind of see God's fingerprints on. Yeah. I think to this day, the biggest, uh, failure that I regret was when I initially became an operations manager. So those, those 200 people were divided into teams. And so I had team leaders reporting to me mm-hmm. and, um, I don't know. I was just so insecure. I was very insecure. There's not, yeah, there's the only word to say for it. (laughs) I was very insecure and um, thought the only way to help them to flourish was to almost create a formula for what a leader should look like and try to Mm. cram them all into it. And so what that looked like unfolding on a daily basis was truly unfortunate. Um, It was truly, Mm. truly just an unfortunate mistake um, such an unfortunate way to lead people, you know, in this kind of like, yeah, it was just such an unfortunate way to lead people. And I'm still in contact with some of them today. And I'm like, why didn't you quit? Like, because it was <laughs> awful. It was awful. Um, so that was my greatest failure, like not mm. understanding the beautiful diversity of how leadership can appear. Um, mm. and, and to like to, that helping a leader develop like the greatest joy of it was seeing how it would uniquely unfold for this particular individual, um, according to their particular and unique gifts. Mm. And so I was cutting myself off to, to a joy for myself as well. Um, and later when I started to let go of that, it was such a joy to see them grow as leaders in all these unique and diverse ways. And, um, yeah, so that, to this day, uh, was my greatest failure. Yeah. To not make room so that like what God wanted to grow could grow. How did, uh, by the way, how did your team or these, these folks react? And maybe it was a variety of ways, but how did they react to you? Um, your pivot, your change, your evolution, your, however you, however you described it at the time into this kind of religious reality? So it was a ton of support. I mean, there were some awkward conversations, but at the bank, I generally had a ton of support. Um, mm. So it, I couldn't keep it a secret when I was entering because I went to working from home so that I wouldn't be, so that I would sometimes be at the convent. Otherwise, I would have never been there. So for my first um, year in the convent no first two years in the convent i was actually still doing my job but working from convent oh my (laughs) goodness saturday night live skit it really is (laughs) that's unbelievable i mean how often does that happen 
That's crazy. By the way, this is before COVID. Now maybe in COVID, people will be like, everybody's working from home. But that's that's not, no. No. So I would go in if I needed to, because this time I had transitioned from being an operations manager to a project manager. So I had like a mm-hmm. much smaller staff and was working projects. Um so it was like doable to work from home. And then my whole team got to go work from home. So they love that. They're like, she goes to the convent. We get to work from home. Excellent. Um, <laughs> so my whole team transitioned <laughs> to working from home. They were very supportive. But I also, again, I, it's easier for me sometimes to explain things in stories. Um, yeah. So there's a story I'll tell to like describe their reaction. And this has been a common reaction. Like there was something about um tr- me trying to follow god that was like awakening an awareness of god in other people and like mm. doing something for them in their relationship with god and so i just come i was visiting from the novitiate and so at this point i had the name josephine i had like a white veil and it's that time in between year one and two because year one is almost like you're cloistered and so then after this cloister for a year, you get to go home for a couple of weeks and you come back and the second year looks a little different. So I was home for these two weeks and one of my previous employees um, came to visit the convent. She asked if she could come by and I said, sure. Oh, wow. And she walked in and all the sisters were around her saying hello and she was just crying. And I used to always tease her. She's a real, you know, she's a girl who cried a lot. And I would tease her. And so I said, are you crying again? And she goes, because it's just my allergies. <laughs> but <laughs> just to like, this is what it did to people. It was like, and it was interesting because um, I think in a sense, they know more of the miracle of God than I do when it comes Ooh. to all that God has done for me. Mm. they know it better than me. So. Mm. They've seen it as a kind of a, they've participated in it from a little bit of a distance, but it's really clear to them. That's beautiful. Wow. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that sister. What I guess as a last point um, before we get into, we have a, a fun, a fun, uh, you know, way to wrap up the show sister. We call it wait, what? which okay. is a few rapid fire questions that you may not be expecting, okay. but they're very quick. But the last thing that I would ask that I've, I'd love to get your perspective on and hear, hear from is, you know, we talked about a number of things already. We talked about faith. We talked about diversity. We've talked about the corporate world. We've talked about discernment. We've talked about presence. We've talked about all these different things. But yeah, this has been a very in, cool it, conversation. <laughs> thank, thank you. Likewise, we're going to have to bring it back for part two. But one of the things that you said um, – uh, earlier, again, not, I don't know if it's a talk or you wrote, but you said something about um, not living in one world and praying in another mm. um, and kind of being split in the in the sense of who we are. I think that amidst the backdrop of social media and digital and all these different ways that expose to the world every aspect of who a leader is in a way that wasn't done before, a lot of the walls have come down, but I've found in my experience that that leaders are still kind of putting faces and masks on and kind of trying to be different things at different moments in time. I'm curious if, if like, if you could, like in the context of all of that, like what, you know, what word, what, what thought, what idea, if just like open mic a minute, whatever time you need. But like, if you've got a microphone to these people who are living, they're the 11 out in the world, they're leading, they're all doing their different things. What would that be in the, in the context of this backdrop, this reality that they're living in and in the, in the context of, you know, 
not living in one world and praying in another? Like, what what would you say to them? Yeah, I would say um, <sighs> with healthy boundaries, like we. Uh, um, with healthy boundaries, we, especially as leaders, as leaders, have got to get more comfortable with the with the what everybody knows is true <laughs> that we don't have it all together, that we don't have all the answers, that we're not perfect. Everybody knows it's true, yet for some reason we like to keep acting like maybe they don't, and mm. like maybe if I you know can keep pretending, you know, um, that nobody will be on to me. And so I guess I just want to encourage people. Um, to like bring your true self to your ministry, to your leadership, whatever it is, be that leader who can be comfortable admitting, like, I'm not sure just yet, but I'm going to get it figured out or I failed here um, or I need help. Or so it's like we, when we're living in one world and praying in another, we're not being fully human. And so I guess it's just to task like leaders and ministers in the church with like growing and being fully human um, and kind of taking off the mask and taking off the pretending again with healthy boundaries. Like It's not for it to be a free for all, um, but to really set it aside. And again, we're seeing it over and over and over again from a ministry perspective, the voices that God is is like raising up the witnesses that God is raising up that are remaining, like not the trending ones that are remaining are people who are able to speak like those first disciples. And they speak of what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have touched, you know, what they have known, the sincerity of their journeys, where they failed, where they didn't fail. And so I guess that's what I would say. That's beautiful. I know it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. All right, sister, to round us out then, we're going to play quickly, Wait What? So this is rapid fire questions kind of out of nowhere, and I'd love your off-the-cuff off the responses. Okay, you ready? so dangerous. Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. If the Catholic faith were a banking or financial instrument, what would it be? If the Catholic faith were a banking or it would be a deposit slip, like deposits and withdrawals. De- <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. Number two, if you could travel back in time, when and where would you next go to mass? I would next go to mass. If I could travel back in time, I would go to the upper room. Nice. So the first one. <laughs> the first one. <laughs> the OG. The, the OG, OG mass. mass. Yes. I love that. I and love that. Come okay. Back to you. okay. <laughs> That's beautiful. All right. And then lastly, religious, lay, or diocesan, who are the best dancers? Diocesan. It's just true. Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? There was okay. this one kid I got in a break dance contest with, and he just, I mean, he wore me out. He, <laughs> he was a seminarian for the diocese. Got okay. All right. All right. Yeah, there say, you go. Beautiful. Yeah, you are admitting it too. You're like, all your sisters went, oh, come on. Well, I thought we had that one. Well, sisters, so awesome to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, just your insights. Um, I, I, you know, blessings upon your your ministries Thank and you. especially the work that you're doing to get the word out there on all the things that you're up to. So, but I just really appreciate you uh, you coming on the show and being part of this. Thank you. It's really nice to meet you. Uh, so, thank you for your vocation as a deacon. I love deacons. <laughs> All right. Yeah, God bless you. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show 
by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.